This is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team, along with my colleague, Nate. Join us as we celebrate C-SPAN's 45th anniversary and our inaugural Founders Day campaign. It all started as a bold experiment on March 19, 1979, when C-SPAN first brought coverage of the House of Representatives into living rooms across America. Let's celebrate C-SPAN's visionary founders who believed in offering unfiltered access to the inner workings of our political process. From Congress to the White House to the courts and beyond, C-SPAN has documented history unfolding without commentary or spin for over four decades. Help us keep it going. Visit cspan.org slash donate today to give a gift in celebration of C-SPAN's Founders Day. Your donation honors the original vision of C-SPAN's founders and helps to advance our mission for years to come. Make your donation today at cspan.org slash donate. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. This week on 2024 Campaign Trail, we're in South Carolina taking a look at the final arguments Republican presidential candidates made to voters ahead of the Palmetto State's Saturday GOP primary. From Charleston, we'll hear from Donald Trump's daughter-in-law as she was out encouraging voters to make it to the polls. But first, we'll hear from rival and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley in Myrtle Beach as she tried to make up a significant polling gap with the former president. The latest Suffolk University USA Today poll had Nikki Haley 28 points behind Donald Trump among South Carolina Republican voters. So that you could see who was paying them. 
We vetoed half a billion dollars of their pet projects because that's not how your money needed to be spent. And by the time I left, we were named the friendliest state in the country, the one I love, the most patriotic state in the country. And don't blame me for this one, but we were named the number two state in the country people were moving to. And now you look at how our country is, and it's tough to watch this. We're $34 trillion in debt. We're having to borrow money just to make our interest payments. China owns some of that debt. For the first time, we're paying more in interest payments than we are in our defense budget. You know who notices that? Russia, China, and Iran. Something's got to give. And I would love to be able to tell you that Joe Biden did that to us. But I've always spoken to you in hard truths, and I'm going to do that with you tonight. Our Republicans did that to us, too. You look, Donald Trump put us $8 trillion in debt in just four years. He claims that was COVID. That was less than 20% of what that was. And our Republicans, they passed that $2.2 trillion COVID stimulus bill with no accountability that has now left us with 80 million Americans on Medicaid, 42 million Americans on food stamps. That's a third of our country. And did they try and make it right? Nope, they doubled down and opened up pet projects and earmarks for the first time in 10 years, passing 7,000 of them last year. That is not the way our money was meant to be spent. So how do we fix our economy? The first thing we need to do is claw back the $100 billion of unspent COVID dollars that are still sitting out there. Instead of 87,000 IRS agents going after middle America, let's go after the hundreds of billions of dollars of COVID fraud. One out of every $7 was spent fraudulently. If 8% of our budget is interest, quit borrowing, cut up the credit cards, you have to balance the budget every day. I had to balance the budget as governor. Why is Congress the only group that refuses to balance the budget? We'll stop their spending. We'll stop their borrowing. We'll eliminate their pet projects. And I will veto any spending bill that doesn't take us back to pre-COVID levels. That will save us trillions. And then we're going to take as many federal programs as we can and send them down to the state level. That will dramatically reduce the size of the federal government, but it will empower people on the ground. Think education, think health care, think welfare, think mental health. If we cut those strings and send those resources down and people on the ground decide how they're spent, that's so much better than Washington bureaucrats spending that. We need an accountant in the White House. That's exactly right. You know, and then we want to go and open up the middle class. The rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. That's why we're going to cut taxes on the middle class and simplify the brackets. We're going to eliminate the federal gas and diesel tax in this country. And we're going to make small business tax cuts permanent. They made them temporary. We need to make them permanent. Small businesses are the heartbeat of our economy. It is time we start acting like it. And speaking of Congress and what they do, Congress has one job, one job, and that's to make sure they give us a budget on time. Congress has only given us a budget on time four times in 40 years. Four times in 40 years. You know what I say about that? When I'm president, you don't get us a budget on time, you don't get paid, period. Don't you think it's finally time we had term limits in Washington, D.C.? Don't you think we need to have mental competency tests for anyone over the age of 75? Now, I want to be clear. I'm not being disrespectful when I say that. We all know people over 75 that can run circles around us. And then we know Joe Biden. Congress is now the most privileged nursing home in the country. It's true. 
And we can't play with this. These are people making decisions on our national security. These are people making decisions on the future of our economy. We need to know they're at the top of their game. And then let's talk about the border. I can't believe we would allow this in the United States of America. Nine million illegal immigrants have come to that border. We've had more fentanyl cross the border last year that would kill every single American. Number one cause of death for adults 18 to 45, fentanyl. And don't think for a second China doesn't know what they're doing when they send it over. We need to take what we did in South Carolina and go national with it. We'll do a national e-verify program so every business has to prove that the people they hire are in this country legally. We will defund sanctuary cities once and for all. No more safe havens in America. We'll put 25,000 Border Patrol and ICE agents on the ground and let them do their job. We will go back to the Remain in Mexico policy so that no one steps foot on U.S. soil. And instead of catch and release, we'll go to catch and deport. That is how we will fix what's happening on the border. But let's talk about what happened last week. Last week, Congress had a border bill. And if you look at that border bill, the part that was good was that it strengthened asylum laws. We have to do that. Three million illegal immigrants came across the border under the Trump administration because our asylum laws weren't strong enough. The weak part about that bill was it didn't have Remain in Mexico. We need to have that. And it had a 5,000-person threshold. We don't even need to have a one-person threshold. But the problem with what happened is Congress needs to get in a room and figure it out and pass a strong border bill. But Trump came in and said, don't pass anything until after the general election. We can't wait one more day to secure our border, period. We can't. Congress needs to get in the room, figure it out, get us a strong bill, and Trump needs to stay out of it. Too many American lives are at risk with that. And you know, when I was growing up in Bamberg, South Carolina, my parents always taught me, you take care of those who take care of you. I'm going to ask you if we're taking care of those who take care of us. Right now in America, over 35,000 of our veterans are homeless. One in three suffers from PTSD or thoughts of suicide. We lose 22 heroes a day to suicide. If a veteran needs a doctor's appointment, on average, takes 29 days. Why 29 days? Because on the 30th day, they can go to the doctor or hospital of their choice. So midway through the 29 days, they get a call to reschedule, and the clock starts all over again. It is shameful how we treat our veterans. Now, I'm the proud wife of a combat veteran who served in Afghanistan. And when Michael came home to us, that was a lot of prayers answered. But that was the easy part. When we got home, life got hard. Michael couldn't hear loud noises. He couldn't be in crowds. Life had passed him by for the year that he was gone and the transition was tough. We can't just love our men and women when they're gone. We gotta love them when they come back home, too. preventing war. And I see what Donald Trump said in Conway over a week ago. Think about this. He said that he would encourage Putin to invade our allies. Now think about this. Trump is siding with a thug 
where half a million people have died and been wounded because Putin invaded Ukraine. Trump is siding with a dictator who kills his political opponents. Trump is siding with a tyrant who arrests political journalists and holds them hostage. Trump is siding with Putin who's made no bones about wanting to destroy America. And you're choosing, Trump is choosing to side with him over the allies that stood with us after 9-11? In the one sec, he does this when he goes off the teleprompter. It's a problem because in that second when he did that, he made all of our allies more vulnerable. He emboldened Putin and Putin's now putting troops along those Baltic states. And he put every one of our men and women in the military that are serving there at risk. Words matter. And speaking of words, that same night, he mocked my husband's military service. Now, I'll say this. Michael and I can handle it. When you're in politics, you're, it's open season. That's fine. But you mock one member of the military. You're mocking every member of the military. And we've overlooked things he said before, but this is now a pattern. I mean, this is, he went and he said that military men and women who lost their lives in service were suckers and losers. He was at Arlington National Cemetery and said, what was in it for them? He's never been near a uniform. You think about it. He's never put on a uniform. We all know veterans. We all know people who serve. We all know people who've lost their lives to service. They don't do this for kicks and giggles. They do this because they know freedom's not free. They do this because it's bigger than about themselves. And so when he does that, it's because he doesn't understand military service. And if he's never been near a uniform, and he's never understood what that kind of sacrifice means, that says a lot more about him than any member of the military. So we know what we need to do with our national security. We know what we need to do with our domestic policy. But now we have to figure out what we want to do on Saturday. You know, I was looking at um, the TV the other day, and I saw a commercial that Trump was running against me, which is interesting, because he says he's not worried, but he's running commercials. And in that commercial, I was looking, and everything he said was a lie. He said, I wanted to open borders. He said, I wanted to raise taxes. Then he sent out a text message, apparently, yesterday, telling everybody I wanted to cut Social Security. None of that is true, and he knows it. But you know, I thought, well, if he's going to lie about me, I'm going to tell the truth about him. Because he needs to answer why he proposed a 25 cent per gallon gas tax increase. He needs to answer why he now wants to raise taxes on every American family by 10%. He wants to put tariffs on everything from baby strollers to appliances. It will be $2,800 more per year on all of us. He needs to explain why he's not going to do anything with Social Security so when he leaves, we all get a 24% cut in our benefits. Those are the things he needs the answer to, but he won't because he won't debate me. So, but this is a time where we need to decide, do we want more of the same or do we want something different? That's bigger than the presidency, that's house, that's senate, that's governorships, that's school boards. But you win by double digits, that's a mandate going into D.C. to stop the wasteful spending and get our economy back on track. That's a mandate to get our kids reading again and go back to the basics in education. That's a mandate to secure our borders with no more excuses. That's a mandate for law and order in our cities. And that's a mandate for a strong America that prevents wars that we can all be proud of. Don't you want that? Because we could have that.
But in order to have that, it's going to take a lot of courage. Courage from everybody here. Courage for me to run. And courage for every one of you to know, don't complain about what happens in a general election if you don't play in this primary. It matters. It matters. You know, seven months ago, I dropped my husband Michael off at 4 a.m. for another year-long deployment. And I watched him and 230 soldiers pick up their two duffel bags of belongings to go to a country they'd never been, all in the name of protecting America. They're willing to sacrifice their lives and their families because they still believe in this amazing experiment that is America. So if they're willing to sacrifice for us there, shouldn't we be willing to fight for America here? Because we have a country to save. But we also have to think about who are we doing this for? We're doing this for our kids, for your grandkids. Think about what they've been through. They've been through COVID. They see this debt and they don't know what it means for them and their lives. They don't know if they're gonna be able to buy a home. They don't know if they're gonna get a job. They don't know how they're gonna make ends meet. They're fearful of a war. They don't deserve what's happening right now. And right now, what do they hear? Anger, chaos, hatred of one another. And then we wonder why there's so much stress, anxiety, and depression? We've got to do this for them. Under Joe Biden, it's not normal to go and have schools focus more on gender pronouns than they are on reading and math. It's not normal to have illegal immigrants come across the border and no one stop them. It's not normal to have these wars all over the world. But then you look at Donald Trump. It's not normal to have paid $50 million in campaign contributions towards your personal court cases. It's not normal to mock the military. It's not normal to go and choose the side of a tyrant over our allies. It's not normal to have any of this happen. That's the problem. Both of these men give us chaos. And I look at this election. It's been a year since I announced I was running. We had 14 candidates in the race. I defeated a dozen of them. I just got one more I got to catch up to. They said we wouldn't make it to Iowa. We came within 1% of second place. Then they said on the day of New Hampshire, we were down 30 points in the polls. We got 43% of the vote. But if you see what happened the night of New Hampshire, I don't know if y'all watched it. Donald Trump had a temper tantrum on stage. He was completely unhinged. All he did was talk about revenge and my dress. The next day, he said anybody that supports her is barred permanently from MAGA. Think about that for a second. If you're running for president, you're trying to bring people in. You're trying to get more supporters, not push people out of your club. And then the next day, he tries to get the RNC to name him the presumptive nominee after two states. We don't anoint kings in America. We have elections. South Carolinians deserve the right to vote, just like every other state. But the part that bothered me was whether it was, oh, and then he lost a couple of court cases, and, and he was talking about being a victim. But the part that bothers me, whether it was the night of New Hampshire, or whether it's him talking about being a victim, at no point has he ever talked about the American people. He's not talking about the fact that we're $34 trillion in debt. He's not talking about that only 31% of eighth graders in our country are proficient in reading. He's not talking about all of the influx happening on the border. He's not talking about the lawlessness in our cities. He's not talking about wars around the world. All he's doing 
is talking about himself. And that's the problem. It is not about him. It's about the American people. You know, when I started, I talked about all of the success stories we had together. Now I'm going to remind you of the challenges that we had. We had a lot while I was governor. We had multiple hurricanes. We had a thousand-year flood. We had a school shooting. We had the shooting of Walter Scott. And we had the shooting of nine amazing souls at Mother Emanuel Church. It was a lot. Any one of those could have brought us to our knees. And after the shooting at the church, when the national media wanted to define everything about who we were, and it was on the heels of Ferguson, and cities were burning when we turned on the TV, why didn't that happen to us? riots. We had vigils. We didn't have protest. We had prayer. The tone at the top matters. We removed a divisive symbol not by saying who was good and who was bad or judging people. A leader shouldn't do that. A leader is supposed to bring out the best in people so that we can go forward. And in through all of those situations, we continue to show the country what strength and grace looks like. We did that. Now we have the chance to do that again. We gotta get this, gotta get everybody to the polls. Everybody. You all know people, whether you realize it or not, that are just general election voters. I want you to remind them something. In a general election, you're given a choice. In a primary, you make your choice. We have a chance to make our choice. So this is what I need you to do. I need you to get everybody you know to go vote on Saturday. I need you to take a yard sign, and if you can't put a yard sign in your yard, put it at the back of your car. And I need you to make sure that you let your voices be heard. Tell your friends, tell your family, email everybody, text them, all of that. This is the time South Carolina can really step up and show the direction that we want our country to go in. I believe in you. I've always trusted you. I've always known that South Carolina truly is the best state in the country. You know, when I announced, they asked me why I was running. And I said, my parents came here 50 years ago to an America that was strong and proud and full of opportunities. I want them to know that country again. I'm doing this for Michael and his military brothers and sisters because they need to know their sacrifice matters. They need to know that we love our country. I'm doing this for my daughter who just got married, and I saw how hard it was for her and her husband to buy a home. The average home buyer in America now is 49 years old. The American dream is leaving them. And I'm doing this for my son, who's a senior in college. And I am tired of watching him write papers of things he doesn't believe in just to get an A. That's not us. That's not America. And for the first time, 81% of Americans don't think their kids are going to live as good of a life as we did. We can't be okay with that. I'm not okay with that. We do have a country to save. But I'll promise you this. Just like I did when you elected me governor twice. If you will join with me in this movement, if you will join with me in this fight, I will spend every single day proving to you that you made a good decision. Thank you very much. God bless you. Also this week, the independent pro-centrist group No Labels told Fox News it was still, quote, considering exceptional leaders, 
for a unity presidential ticket this year. That came after retiring West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, a centrist Democrat, said this week he wouldn't be pursuing the presidency, saying he didn't want to be a spoiler in this year's race. Next, a preview of what you'll see this weekend on American History TV's Historic Campaign Speeches series. Every Saturday, AHTV on C-SPAN 2 looks at presidential campaigns past. This week, you'll hear two speeches from Republicans in South Carolina. From 2000, George W. Bush stumping in the Palmetto State. And from 2016, Donald Trump's final remarks to South Carolina voters just a day before that year's presidential primary. My vision for America is that each of us understand. Each of us understand that we're responsible for the decisions we make in life. Each of us must understand that we're responsible for loving the children we bring into this world, that we're responsible for helping the communities in which they live be the best they can be. And all of us are responsible for hearing that universal call to love a neighbor just like we'd like to be loved ourselves. Government can help usher in the responsibility by passing law that says we're going to hold you accountable for what you do. If you break the, the law with using a gun, there needs to be accountability. In my vision, that's a four-letter word called jail. But government, the false past, the false hope of the past is all you got to do is wait for government to pass a law and everything will be like, everything will be fine. But let me tell you what I know and you know. Governments cannot make people love one another. It's been the great false hope of the past. All you got to do is pass a law and people will love one another. But love comes from a higher calling, a higher authority. The great strength of America lies in the hearts and souls of citizens who've heard that call, not in the halls of government. So my job, in order to usher in the responsibility era, will gather the armies of compassion to rally the people of faith and goodwill and good heart who are willing to help a neighbor in need to help a young who needs to be mentored, to say to people there are right choices in life to make and there are wrong choices in life to make, to rally the armies of compassion to help close the gap of hope in America. And finally, in order to usher in the responsibility era, I understand this profound fact that in order to call upon the best of America, if I'm the one chosen, if I'm the one that you dominate to our start on the nomination process tomorrow and eventually become your president, when I put my hand on the Bible on that January day of 2001, I will swear to not only uphold the laws of the land, I will swear to uphold the honor and the integrity of the office to which I have been elected. So help me God. Thank you all for coming. And God bless. The New Hampshire experience to me was an amazing experience. But what was their big problem? So I go in. Their big problem, heroin, drugs. You look at New Hampshire, the most beautiful area, the most beautiful place, the greatest people. These people are great. Every place, they're great. You're great. They're great. No matter where we go, the people of this country are unbelievable people. The potential of the people, the potential of the people in our country, unbelievable. Now, with New Hampshire, remember this. They said to me, Mr. Trump, it's heroin. The drugs are pouring in. You would never think. It, you can't even associate it. We're going to close up that border. We're going to build a wall. We're going to build a wall. And I owe them. I owe them. No matter when I went, they talk about Common Core. They talk about everything. But what they really talk about is the tremendous drug explosion. And it just seems so strange because you look at it. It's so beautiful with the trees and the beautiful roadways and everything. And every meeting I went to, they talked about heroin, heroin, heroin. And it's pouring in from the southern border. And I said to him, you know what? I'm going to close up that border. I'm going to close up. I'm going to close up that border. And we're going to have a wall. It's going to be a real wall. It's going to be a great wall. It's going to be a beautiful wall, because someday they're going to probably name it after Trump. I have to make sure it's beautiful, right? And I owe it to them. I owe it to them. On Wednesday, Laura Trump, daughter-in-law of former President Donald Trump, was in South Carolina as part of his campaign's get-out-the-vote efforts. Here's part of her visit where she was joined by South Carolina Republican Representative Nancy Mace, who endorsed Mr. Trump's campaign. There's only one man in this 
grace today that has the work ethic to turn our nation around. And that man is Donald yes. J. Trump. <laughs> there is only one man who has the courage to take on the bureaucracy, these secretaries, these agencies who spy on Americans, who call us extremists, and that man is Donald J. Trump. <laughs> The next thing I want to say is that we all talk about, we hear politicians, we talk about how important this election is. This election is the most consequential election of our lifetime. Who voted in 2020 for Donald Trump? Who is ready for the 47th yes. president to be This is a good crowd. I like this energy. This is the energy, folks it's going to take to win. And you just heard it. This election is the most important election of any of our lifetimes. And I don't say that with any sort of hyperbole at all. We feel it right now in this country. We've had three years of Joe Biden in the White House. How's that working out for everybody? Can we even actually say that it's Joe Biden who's running the country? you guys this. Does anyone actually believe that in 2020, 81 million people were so inspired by a guy who could only get 10 people in hula hoops to an event that he had the most massive turnout in the history of elections? No, we don't believe that. But that is why everyone in this room is so important because guys, we're leaving nothing to chance on this one. It starts on Saturday, right here in the great state of South Carolina. And then we're taking it on 257 days from now to November 5th, where we get a huge victory, not for ju just Donald Trump, for the entire country, right? you Donald Trump's life would be a lot easier if he just said you know what enough is enough I'm hanging up my hat I'm gonna let somebody else run with this one this is too much because let's face it they have tried to do everything possible to destroy his life this man our family his business at every possible turn they thought you know what we'll do we'll impeach him Impeach him once, impeach him twice. That'll seal the deal. Donald Trump will be done. We'll never have to deal with him again. Yeah, right. And then he said, wait a minute, not so fast. Because I see a country that needs me. I see a country that needs to go back to we the people. He understands that. And I'll tell you guys, he didn't need this job in 2016. They actually thought it was a joke. Remember when he came down the escalator? It was a publicity stunt, another season of The Celebrity Apprentice he was going to talk about. And then he came down, and man, did he have a lot of common sense he was talking about, right? He actually spoke like we all spoke. He was saying the things that resonated with people, and despite the fact that he was a billionaire businessman from New York City, he connected with the American people. He started a movement in this country, the likes of which we've never seen. The Make America Great Again, America first yes. movement. Any ultra MAGA in here? Yeah. Can we just talk about how great it is to actually be ultra MAGA? Yes. Let me tell you something. That is something to be proud of because it means you love this country. It means you get up every day, you go to work, you work for your family, you believe that the almighty is the most important thing in this world, that you pay your taxes, that you were a good citizen of this country. That's what ultra MAGA means. But leave it to some folks out there to try and skew it. But Donald Trump never needed to do this job. He had a great life. He had all the money in the world. He had all the friends in the world. But he knew that this was his time. Before he ever came down that escalator and announced he was running for president, he actually sat down with our entire family and he said, you know guys, if I do this, it's not just about me. It's gonna involve our entire family. And if I do what needs to be done for this country, believe me, they will come after us. And they're not just gonna come after me, 
it's all of us who are involved. So I need to know that you guys understand what that means and that you're ready for that. And we were all like, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) What could go wrong here? How bad could it be? Little did we know, of course. But he understood, even in 2015, where we were in this country and what needed to change. And it took a guy who funded his own campaign until he became the Republican nominee. It took a guy who didn't take a single paycheck while he was president of the United States. He is the only president to come out of the White House with less money than he went into the White House with, okay? You see the way they go after him at every turn? They tried the impeachment, those didn't work. So they said, ah, we got it. We know what will take this guy down. We'll indict him. We'll get somebody to indict him. Let's slap an indictment on him. That'll end Donald Trump as we know it. And what happened? His poll numbers went up. People started getting behind him even more. They said, that's not enough. We need another indictment. So they did a second one. Poll numbers went up. So they said, this isn't working. What do we do? Call Fannie Willis in Fulton County. Get her to slap an indictment on him. And while she's at it, get her to release a mugshot. That'll take Donald Trump down. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the greatest mugshot in the history of America. That's it. But something happened and something changed when that mugshot came out. Obviously, that's the best blue steel I've ever seen. But people really responded to that in a very different way than what they intended, right? right? People looked at that mugshot and they saw themselves in it. They saw the same system that hadn't been working for them was working against this guy. They said something's going on because all of this is being pulled into this one man. They really must want to keep him from going back in that White House. And that's true. We all know it in this room. The truth is that Donald Trump exposed so much during his first term in office. Not only did he do a lot of great things, I mean, talk about, you know, historically low unemployment, trade deals with China, Mexico, Canada, peace agreements in the Middle East instead of wars starting in the Middle East, talks with Kim Jong-un to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula, We had things working in America. We had a closed border in America when Donald Trump was Because he understood if you don't have a border, you don't have a country. He understood why that was so important. He saw what was happening and why it was so dangerous to this country. Not only did he do all of these incredible things, give us energy independence, ladies and gentlemen, right? $1.87 a gallon gas when Donald Trump was in office. I got to tell you something, when he's back in, we're opening back up the Keystone XL pipeline. Gas prices will go down, inflation will come down, it'll give us a better standing on the world stage, it'll take money away from Russia to fund their war with Ukraine, it'll take money away from Iran to fund Hamas invading Israel. There are so many things that were great under a Donald Trump presidency, but possibly the greatest thing he did was expose what was going on, the rot at the core of Washington, D.C. And those very people are desperate to keep him out. They only have one problem. Nothing they put against him will succeed. Though they try, they will fail because this man will never stop. He will never give up. He will never stop fighting for what he knows is right. And what is right is to give this country back to the people. We got to do it. And they also won't succeed because of every one of you in this room. Because since the day he got 75 million votes on election day in 2020, I will guarantee you, ladies and gentlemen, 
10 million more people have gotten on that Trump train. More people's eyes are open. More people see it. More people understand it. And you know, since the very beginning, I think we've all felt that God has been a part of things, right? I used to hear it all the time on the campaign trail in 2016 that people would pray for us. They pray for my father-in-law. And I truly believe that prayer works. This is a fight right now, not between Republican, Democrat, left versus right. It's good versus evil. There is no way that this one man would still be standing, still be fighting, still be doing what he knows is right for the future of this country, if not for the Almighty up above. Okay? God is in this world. And there are people who maybe were upset with the outcome of the 2020 election. You're looking at one of them. Believe me, no one put more into that, more of their blood, sweat, and tears than those of us in our family. And it was a very hard time for us to really see what was going on in this country and, and say, well, there's nothing else we can do. Joe Biden's going to take over. And it was a dark time for, for America, for a lot of people in this room. But sometimes things don't happen in our time. They happen in God's time. And I will tell you right now that I truly believe that we needed the past three years. We needed people to wake up. We needed people to see and understand what you get if you vote for people like Joe Biden. People are awake right now, ladies and gentlemen, and once you're awake, you're not going back to sleep, okay? So, I wanna tell you guys very quickly, and then I wanna take some questions from you. You may have heard my father-in-law endorsed me to co-chair the RNC. Something I never imagined that I would do, but I also never imagined that America would be at this point, that we would really be so bad off and, and really need someone to ultimately come and save us. So I'm here to do whatever I can to ensure that we get this country back on track. I've been involved in GOP politics for 40 years, and I've noticed uh, over the years a schism between establishment and the working guy, the forgotten guy, the guy who opens the gates for his crews every day. What would you do as RNC chairman or co-chair to uh, fix that divide and gain people's trust? Well, I think Donald Trump did it. You know, he really bridged that gap. I talked earlier about the fact that this is a billionaire from New York who really connected with the American people. And I think that that's part of the rationale for, you know, having a Trump family member go to the RNC. You know, people know that they can trust Donald Trump. They know he's fighting for the causes they care about. And having someone like me in there, I think will go a long way for people. I can assure you that my loyalty is to my father-in-law and I will make sure that every penny is used properly, that people's money is not going, you know, getting wasted on flowers or limousines or anything else. It should be going to fight to November 5th for the causes that we care about. Laura, we've seen Trump liken his legal woes and indictments to the death of Novani in Russia. In what ways are the, the two similar? Well, I think you would have to ask him exactly what he meant, but I think we're talking about targeting a political foe, and that's what you've seen happen with Joe Biden weaponizing his Department of Justice. There's no doubt that if my father-in-law was not running for president of the United States right now, you wouldn't see any of these indictments against him. They wouldn't be trying to tear his business apart to ruin and destroy his family, his legacy, and everything that he's worked his entire life for. These things are not just. They are not real. They are very clearly designed to be election interference, and that's exactly what it is. Those are things you see happen in a communist country. Those are things you see happen in Russia to political opponents. So I assume he meant that in very much the same way he's been targeted as do, well. And do you believe that Putin is responsible for the death of Navalny? I don't know enough to comment on that. Do you think the RNC should get involved in Republican primaries if some of the Republican candidates do not support Donald Trump, that they, the RNC should support the opponents? Um, I don't really know what their stance is. I think generally they stay out of those things. And so I think, I don't know why we would change course on that now.
One of the issues we've seen with the RNC over the past few years is they've been ensnared in costly lawsuits over ballot access, over things like that you mentioned in the room, things like voter ID. How do you balance these issues that are clearly of import to you with the cost that it takes to fight, you know, all these lawsuits in a year when you're also you have so many races on the ballot to also spend money on? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to raise a ton of money. I think that's going to be a big portion of of what I would do if I was co-chair of the RNC. I think we have to have a huge fundraising push, and I think that then you can do both simultaneously. Obviously, you can't win at the ballot box if you have all of these things against you. So these lawsuits, I do believe, are important, and I do think people care about them, but you also have to have a ground game. You have to have voter outreach. You have to have voter registration and all the things that um, you know make up a traditional campaign. So I think, look, we raise enough money, we can do them all. Uh, Laura, 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 you talked a lot about the 2020 election just now, and I, I saw some notes from earlier in Buford that you did the same. Do you think that Joe Biden was legitimately elected president? Me personally, no. Laura, to the question about impartiality in the RNC in the primary, if Haley stays in the race, though, and you do become co-chair or chair um, before she drops out, would you commit to staying the RNC staying impartial? Well, I don't think there's any path to Nikki Haley becoming the Republican nominee. So if she wants to continue this quest just for a personal situation, that's fine with me. I don't think that there's any way that I will not be backing my father-in-law. I think my personal feelings are one thing. Um, you know, the RNC will be supporting whoever the Republican nominee for president is. I think we all know that's going to be Donald Trump. Uh, on, on the fundraising front, there have been some major Republican donors, Ken Griffin, some, some ultra guys who have kind of decided they're, they're not going to support, support Trump. And they're historically helped, you know, fund Republican campaigns nationally. If you are uh, vice chair or co-chair, excuse me, um, will you try to bring them back in the fold? Or is that a concern to you that some historically some some big Republican donors have, have said they're going to kind of sit out as far as supporting President Trump so far? Yeah, I mean, certainly everyone's welcome to donate. We would love everyone to be involved. And I don't see why we would say no to anyone donating money. So if that's something that they wanted to talk about, I'd be more than happy to talk with would them about it. Would there be outreach efforts to try to bring some of those folks um, back in the floor? I'm sure there will be. Yeah, I'm sure that'll be a big yeah. part. What were some of the conversations that you had with the former president about becoming the RNC co-chair before he endorsed you? Well, I'm not going to talk about a personal conversation with my father-in-law, um, but I'll tell you that he very strongly believes in me and believes that I can do the job that needs to be done. Otherwise, he would never have endorsed me. And um, I think he understands that this is a, a must-win fight. And so for him to ensure that you have a cohesiveness between the campaign and the RNC is very important. So uh, I'm honored to have his endorsement. Laura, can you talk about that? was barred from conducting business in New York. Has there been in the family any talk about a role for Ivanka, a role for Melania in this? Well, that ruling, I believe, will be overturned because it is so egregious and so outrageous that I don't think any appellate court would actually let it stand. So, Laura, can you talk about your qualifications to be co-chair? Like, what is your pitch to the members when you get there when the election is supposed to happen? Well, I've been part of my father-in-law's campaign now for two campaign cycles. I was a senior advisor in 2020 to his campaign. You know, all of us were very new to politics, and we certainly had a lot to learn. But I've learned a lot about that, and I've worked with the RNC whenever I was, you know, part of the Trump campaign um, from 2016 all the way through 2020. So, I mean, I think as far as campaigns go, I have a lot of experience. I'm sure there's a lot I still need to learn, though. Ma'am, the current co-chair of the RNC is Drew McKissick, who has been deeply loyal to your father-in-law. Have you had any conversations with Drew about this role change? Because that would be major for this state. I have not reached out to Drew directly, no. no when, from a timeline perspective, one of the conversations they're having about uh, the Trump endorsements and sort of re having new leadership at the, at the RNC, when, when did those conversations kind of begin? Well, I know he's probably been very clear publicly a long time that he feels there should be change at the RNC. So, I mean, I would say privately for him, I'm sure he's been talking quite a bit with, with Ron. When did he reach out to you and gauge your interest, I guess? Well, I'll keep that between the two of us. What's going to happen with uh, the bill uh, on Ukraine um, in the House? What do you expect? Well, I don't see it coming to the floor anytime soon. Now, there's some 
that uh, have said that they want to do a discharge petition on the Democrat side. Now, will there be a push with Republicans to do that? I haven't seen that yet, but we've been out of session this week. We go back next week, and that will be telling. But the biggest thing that I see on the radar is that we have to address spending after the CR. So the CRs, the short-term CR will expire the first week of March, and the clock is ticking. And so what do we do next? Based on what happened to the Senate, border bill, if you can call it that, you can see this groundswell of Republicans, Democrats, and independents that are really frustrated with what's going on at the border. And my frustration at the federal level is that Republicans have sent two bills over to the Senate. We did H.R. 2 last year. That's a negotiating starting point. And we did a Homeland Security Appropriations Bill with border security in it. They've already gotten two bills to negotiate from. Um, and you're seeing that what's going on in New York, what's going on in Chicago. This is, and I just uh, got some data back in our district, immigration is the only issue people are talking about. Congresswoman, what's your, uh, do you support the leadership changes at the RNC that Donald Trump is proposing? The RNC, it looks like, is broke. And we, we do need new leadership. And I'm encouraged by seeing some of the names that are being floated out there. We've got to raise money. We need to get Donald Trump back in the White House. We need to keep the House. And I come from a purple district, and I know how hard it is to keep a seat like this. I know what issues really drive constituencies and voters. And those are the districts and states we're going to have to work on if we want to flip the Senate, keep the House, which is going to be a challenge, and then flip the White House. We need all the money we can get in donations and fundraising for the RNC and NRCC and NRA to be able to do that. What do you think it's going to take? I mean, you know, Laura in there said if she were the co-chair, she wants to see half a billion dollars raised in the next, I think, eight, nine months. I mean, what is it going to take to, to get that money? Because to some extent, we have a status quo, right? Trump seems to have all locked up the nomination. People kind of know what they're looking for when it comes to election day. Well, I mean, he has a fundraising machine. So if you have someone like Laura Trump that is familiar with the fundraising machine that is behind Donald Trump, I believe that would be great for the party in being able to fundraise from the top down. That'll I believe would be a benefit. The, the Robert Hur report um, was pretty devastating for the president, mm -hmm. right? It says he's not competent to stand trial, but he's competent to uh, leave the country. Uh, what powers does the House have to address this? Well, I mean, we have the 25th Amendment, which has been brought up, but no one's formally done anything about it. But if you're not competent to stand trial or face a charge, how, how, like you said, how are you competent to be president of the United States? And it is a, you're seeing Democrats not say Joe Biden's name on the campaign trail. You're seeing people not want him to come visit their district. He almost fell up the stairs of Air Force One this morning, I read in reports. And so really who's behind the wheel at the White House is the question we should all be Do asking you ourselves. Do any hearings or anything like that? It's hard to say at this point. I don't know what judiciary will do on oversight. Of course, we had the deposition of James Biden happening this week. We will have Hunter Biden in in the weeks ahead. So we've been focused on that part of the investigation. I don't know what will happen in other, in other committees of jurisdiction. What do you, what do you make of the Smirnoff indictment and the implications for the House impeachment? Well, the, the FBI said that the witness was trustworthy and credible and paid a lot of money to be an informant for the FBI. Jamie Raskin said that that witness was entirely credible. There's video verifying all of that out there at the time. So um, that You're part, well, that's what the FBI said. Not I'm not saying that, not right, but at the time, the FBI had been saying that. My question is, why wasn't this done sooner if it was not trustworthy, if it was not credible? I have more questions than answers. You and Donald Trump have had your fair share of negative comments about each other. In 2022, he called you untruthful and a grandstanding loser. Uh, how exactly do you explain the flip-flop that, that you've been accused of having when it comes to now supporting and endorsing former president? I don't call it a flip-flop. Um, and in fact, I supported him in 16. I supported him in 20. And I talked about in 22 all the policies of his that I supported. Um, you've been very vocally against him in, in some aspects as well. In your oh, I don't agree with everyone 100% of the time about 100% of the things I represent. Again, a very independent-minded district. But look, if Donald Trump and Snoop Dogg can reconcile, so can he and I, and we've come a long way. And I'm not going to agree with everyone on everything, and I said that in my endorsement of him this cycle as but well. You did say that January 6th wiped away his legacy. Do you have a reaction to that? I certainly didn't like it, and I talked about it then. And, and you know, but I'm looking forward. I'm looking to the future, and I'm looking at the last three years under Joe Biden. I will take Donald Trump all day long. This was an easy call to endorse him. He is the guy that Republican primary voters want to nominate. He's going to win 
every single state, and he's going to win it resoundingly, historically, by some of the highest numbers we've ever had a nominee win by. What did you make yesterday of Trump likening him having to pay that $355 million fine with the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny? Did you agree with that? What did you think what, of those Say comments? the question again. Oh, so Tom, uh, Trump mm -hmm. yesterday during the Fox News town hall, mm -hmm. he likened, he compared, he said that him having to pay the $355 million fine mm -hmm. in his New York civil fraud case is like uh, the death of uh, Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Do you agree with that? What do you think of that? I hope he appeals the fines that New York is putting on him. And I read today that they want to take his buildings away from him. So I hope that they, he will appeal that decision. There were no victims. The banks called him a whale, want to do more business with him. Um, those are the things you should be looking at any, than anything else. Okay, so one one more question. One more question. You're the last question. Thank you. On fundraising at the RNC, do you agree with Laura Trump's assertion that every penny should go to Donald Trump and potentially his legal fees? Well, every penny should go toward flipping the White House, absolutely, and that helps all these other races down the ballot, whether you're talking about the Senate or the House or other races down ballot. So we absolutely, if we flip the White House, we're going to win a lot of races, both in the House and in the Senate, I believe, nationwide. Thank you all so much. Do you have an action tell Alabama's ruling today on the IBF? Oh, on the and thank you for asking that question because I'm extremely, I'll answer this one, uh, passionate about women's issues. I don't support any effort to take away IVF from any woman in this country, number one. And this is an issue we're going to have to talk about. We've got to talk about abortion. We've got to talk about birth control. We've got to talk about making sure we don't take away women's rights to IVF for women who are childbearing age and want to give birth to children. That is something I'm extremely passionate about. I'll be working very hard to make sure that doesn't happen. Thank you so much. A reminder, this program and all of C-SPAN's campaign 2024 coverage can be found online at cspan.org slash campaign.